Welcome to Design Talk. In the next few episodes, we'll be looking at the design ecosystem for new products and new ventures, working across the product team interface, understanding how to work with teams from the outside in and the inside out. Hello, I'm Priyanka Vadkar. And I am Luca. We are very pleased to welcome Lisa Carey, staff technical writer at Google. First, Lisa, can you share a few words about yourself and career to begin? Sure. Uh, my name is Lisa Carey. Um, I've been a technical writer for over 20 years, uh, working in a variety of different software companies, including, as Alan said, uh, in Havoc with Alan. Uh, I started working in Google 15 years ago, um, back when we didn't really have that many external facing uh products. So I worked on internal infrastructure and internal docs. And then I moved into Google Cloud, which is where I work today. Um, I'm the docs lead for a product called Ampos. So I would like to know what does a day in the life of a technical writer look like? That is an excellent question. Uh, because it is extremely varied. And that's one of the things I like so much about the role. Um, so for a big project, um, what you're doing kind of depends on where you are in the project timeline. So when I'm just starting on a project, particularly it's for, if it's for like a big new product or feature, I spend a lot of time just learning. So I'm learning about the audience. I'm learning about the use cases. I'm learning about um, the details of the technology and how it works. Um, I'm finding about about the launch schedule and any possible constraints on my work. Um, and so I spend a lot of that time reading, playing with the technology if there is an early version available, uh, usually meetings with subject matter experts. So that might be product managers, uh, usually our eng leads and maybe with our UX people. So. After I've kind of moved out of that learning phase, um, I do a lot of planning. So normally for any kind of substantial tech writing work, I put together a doc plan where I have to kind of make sure I've got down, well, what are my priorities? Um, what topics do I need to cover? Like what are the CUJs for the product or feature? Have I got going to have enough stuff to support my users on these CUJs? I'm working out the information architecture, like the structure of the docs, kind of what order are they going to come in? How are the users going to navigate through them? Um, I'm working out timelines. I'm making sure that I have the right source material and experts. So that might be what people am I going to bug with really annoying questions? Uh, what Are there any design docs, PRDs, friction logs? Uh, that I can use, um, or in some cases, maybe the developers have even put together like a preliminary user guide for a preview, so I can use that. And is this going to be part of a larger documentation set? So what is its relationship with other docs? Like, where am I going to need to put in links? Am I going to need to update anything else? And then I have to get that plan validated. So that takes up a lot of time. And finally, <laughs> once I've done all that, I might do some technical writing. Uh, so 
at some so in that phase i'm actually creating the content um i'm making or commissioning depending on the kind of resources i have diagrams um i'm getting feedback so i might want to get feedback on the writing so maybe peer feedback from other writers some of the places i've worked including my very first job had professional technical editors which is an incredible resource it's and it's a very specific skill and then obviously i had to run the stuff past my subject matter experts to make sure i am not telling a load of lies in the documentation um and then i'm implementing edits so and then finally finally getting stuff published um then in addition to this so that's kind of the main doc project work i'm also often giving feedback so i'm kind of a first user for the for a lot of features so i am often the person going this is inconsistent or this doesn't really make sense and i'm having to explain it to people um and i do a lot of other types of work as well so and this would vary from tech writer to tech writer but some of the kind of things you might be doing is working on documentation tooling so i have an open source project uh called doxy which is a template for the hugo static site generator that's specifically tailored towards technical documentation it's um it's one of the usual motivations for a software engineering project i.e i was very annoyed that such a thing didn't exist already so i made it myself uh, but lots of tech writers will work on stuff like that either internally or externally um we often spend a lot of time particularly in big organizations working on process so and or improving processes so how do people make requests to the documentation team what's the review process what's our prioritization process how can we streamline things to make sure things get done in a timely fashion and a quality fashion and uh training so uh i give a lot of internal training on writing and documentation for both engineers and tech writers uh i talk at conferences and as you can see i am here <laughs> talking to you um so say for example today i spent a certain amount of time preparing for this talk i spent a certain amount of time working on an ongoing project and then another thing we often end up doing is just like small fixes so you end up fitting little projects around big projects um like i updated one page because there was just something out of date in it um and what this all looks like um also varies a bit depending on the type of technology you're documenting and the type of audience you have so for example over the course of my career i've met people who work on hardware docs or data center docs so they're still doing the same thing they're learning and planning and writing and doing all this other stuff but it's it's a lot more hands on because they're actually dealing with physical hardware and their docs have a lot more warnings about how to not electrocute yourself <laughs> um yep so that's that's my day in the life of a technical writer and all its varied glory okay thank you uh now 
Uh, we know that internal documentation has had bad press over the years. How much documentation is enough? Hmm. Internal docs is something I actually feel quite strongly about because, as I said earlier, I spent a lot of my early time in my current job working internal docs. I've worked in internal docs uh, in other companies as well. Uh, I spent a lot of time kind of advocating for internal docs and also trying to persuade people to write them. So uh, here is my quick whistle stop why you should have internal docs, but not too many internal docs. Um, so the, the first thing that I always bring to people is like appeal to pure self-interest. People will stop asking you so many annoying questions if you have documented your system that other people internally have to use, either by just pestering you or clogging up your mailing list with how do you do this? How do you configure this? Um, I also point out that one person knowing how it works is not very scalable. Uh, and also what happens if they leave? or are abducted by aliens or any other sort of disaster. I also find it's a good exercise for uncovering assumptions like, oh, everyone knows that. Um, and it means people don't have to dig through your code or your comments. Though I will say good com code comments are also a great form of internal documentation uh, if they're done well. I've had people come back to me and say, well, you know, we, I mean, like it's documented. It's, it's all there in these five email threads and this PRD and this doc that's not linked from anything else. And this photograph I took of a whiteboard once. Um, so to that, I would say well-structured docs are easier and faster for other people to find the information they need. One of the things I, I always say to people when I'm teaching technical writing is the sad truth is nobody wants to read your documentation. <laughs> they want to get in, learn how to do the thing or get the answer to their question and get out again. They do not want to spend hours rummaging through like your 15 mailing list archives. Um, so. And also, it's easier to keep up to date uh, if it's all in one place. So I, I previously worked on a project where, again, it was a situation where the docs were, I think, mailing list archives, um, a wiki, uh, random docs that weren't linked to each other. And it meant the docs frequently went out of date because people didn't realize, oh, oh, that was covered in this page. Um, which caused frustration for the the internal users and occasionally resulted in massive errors because people were configuring things using the out-of-date information. Um, last but not least, in terms of how much is enough, uh, I, I kind of go back to the you, people want to come in, get the information they need and get out. So it's like figuring out, I'm going to talk a bit about this later, I think, figuring out what they need, the user needs to know and nothing else. Also, huge amounts of docs all have a massive maintenance overhead. 
So you don't want so much documentation that it's going to get out of date. Um, and that's, I think, all my random random tips on internal documentation. So uh, do you need to be an expert in the topics you work on? That is another great question. Um, and the answer is yes and no. Um, so you don't need to be like a member of the engineering team. You don't have to have, you know, that kind of in-depth knowledge where you could potentially start fixing bugs in the product. Um, but you do need a strong understanding, like a mental model of the product and how it's used, like how the user is going to interact with it, how it's going to help the user, what kind of things the user is going to need to do with it. Um, and what the results are going to be. So, for example, say if I was documenting a public-facing API, I would, I'd need to know, understand what it does. Um, I'd need to understand like how it's useful, you know, and the use cases, like when might somebody need to call this API. Um, I generally need to be able to use it. So. Um, and I'd probably need to be able to read some of the implementation, but I wouldn't necessarily be able to fix bugs in it if that's the kind of level of level of understanding. Um, I suppose just to follow on from that, um, one of the things that I would look for when I'm hiring a technical writer is less does this person have expertise in a particular technology? Like, you know, are they a great Java programmer or have they worked loads with Kubernetes? Um, I would be looking for a very strong technical aptitude. So are they the kind of person who can grok that mental model of the product really quickly? Do they ask good questions? Um, because I literally spend large amounts of my life asking possibly stupid questions of subject matter experts because they're the questions that users might have too. Um, so, you know, if they if they are that certified Java engineer or whatever, sorry, I'm really showing my age. I think that might be the last programming certification I got. Um, you know, that shows that they have a good technical aptitude, maybe. What I really want to know is, can they learn stuff fast? Okay, thank you. Now, uh, what about your audience? Because it must be easier writing about technology and technical thing for a technical audience. Huh. So, again, that's kind of a yes or no. Um, so there's a sort of baseline level of technical understanding that you can assume for a you know an audience of very technical technical practitioners um so if you're writing docs for a cloud product for uh developers or platform admins like they probably know what a cloud is <laughs> so you're not you know there's a there's a baseline but you still get that kind of curse of knowledge thing where Technical people often assume that everyone who is technical is just like them and knows the exact same things. Um, there's an exercise 
that I sometimes do um, both when I'm giving internal training in Google, uh, where for an audience of, of software engineers and other uh, other engineers, uh, where I put up a big spreadsheet of loads of terminology that's used in internal Google products. And I ask people, does everyone know what all these things are? And nobody has the exact same set and nobody understands what all of them are. Um, so there's always still going to be um, a matter of kind of trying to figure out who your audience is, what do they know, what do they understand, what do they not need to know, um, and then what kind of information are they going to need to, to support them uh, in doing the task or understanding the thing. Um, so yeah, it's there's a certain amount of assumptions you can make, but the audience analysis is still is still really important. Uh, so in terms of audience, what about non-technical internal audience? So yeah, it's I think writing really good docs for a non-technical audience is I mean it is a specific skill. Um, so you'll see it in good docs for end-user products. Um, like it just it's seamless it's just really easy to understand but still kind of boils down to understanding your audience so what do they know what do they care about um and it's a matter of pitching the docs at a level where they can understand the technology they can get that mental model enough so that they can both kind of carry out the tasks and so that they could apply, you know, the examples and instructions that you're giving them to their specific use cases. So they're not going to be bamboozled with technical details, but the information you're giving them is is accurate and it's enough that they can go off and actually do the thing that they that they want to do. Okay. Uh, do you get illustrators involved too? Because diagrams need accompanying descriptions too. Yeah, so diagrams are really, really useful. Um, they're particularly useful if you're showing something like a, a complex architecture. I, something I deal with a lot in my current job, where you've got like X talking to Y via Z, and there's like 8 million little boxes. And if you try to just describe it in text, there will be like a wall of text and everyone would be very confused. Um, they're also useful for complex flows. So I do a lot of flow diagrams where you're talking about, well, this starts with a user sending an API request, but you know, where does it go? <laughs> what different systems are involved in it? Um, obviously it does, as you, as you mentioned, it still needs a description. Um, so you, but it's much easier to do the description um, because you can refer back to the image. In terms of who does the diagrams, it, it has varied from job to job and project to project. Depending on how things are resourced, you can have like a professional illustrator who will take your 
literally drawn on the back of a napkin drawing of how something works and will turn it into something really, really beautiful. Or some other jobs and projects I've had to do them myself. So I've become quite good recently with uh, Lucid Charts. Uh, Lucid Charts does very nice, um, is very nice for doing architecture and flow diagrams. And you can generate nice scalable SVG files from it. Um, but yeah, it's, it, diagrams are great in their place. Um, Lisa, what does success look like? Ooh, that's a tricky one. Because <laughs> what you need to, what you want to know is, did this content that I created, did it support my users in meeting their goals with the product? Like, were they able to do the thing? How do you find that out? That is difficult. <laughs> so there's kind of two approaches, uh, complementary approaches you can take. So the first one would be more qualitative uh, in terms of the information you get. And that can be just asking the users whether your docs were successful. Uh, how you do that, it kind of varies. So uh, if you're doing internal documentation, often your user is just down the hall from you. So you can just ask them. Um, for bigger products and companies, um, you might do some more formal UX research where you get in customers and get them to work through uh, something using the docs and ask for their feedback, how they found it, were they able to find all the information they needed, uh, did they get lost? Um, and also for like feedback that the user had, like kind of unsolicited feedback. So um, a lot of products would have feedback forms on the websites. Um, so we do get we do get like bug reports and feedback from customers that way as well. Then we move on to the slightly trickier area. The the more quantitative metrics. Um, so these are all to a certain extent proxies for more qualitative things like, do they understand the thing? Can they do the thing? So some of the things we might measure to measure success, um, the number of support requests for the product. Um, if you put up out new docs for something or updated docs for something and suddenly support aren't being bombarded with, requ with requests because from confused customers, uh, that's a good sign. Similarly, like load the mailing list, if the number of queries on a mailing list go down because all the questions that had been going to the mailing lists are being answered in the docs, that's also a good success signal. Um, for some types of docs, uh, you might be able to measure things like the time it takes a user to perform a task, like a complex installation flow. Like if you if you improve the doc and suddenly the time it takes 
a customer to do the task drops from an hour to half an hour, then you're doing something right because it may it probably means the user is not getting lost. They've got a their it, the information is clear. Um, there's maybe not superfluous information. You know, they've got the information they need to do the thing successfully. Um, you might look at product adoption. That that can be difficult to directly tie to doc success. Um, for my, if you're launching a new version of a product, or particularly something with a breaking change, you might look at successful migrations. Um, and then the other thing that a lot of people would look at is analytics type information like page views. Though that's something that you need to be careful with. You sometimes can slip into the assumption that, oh, it's got lots of page views. Lots of people are looking at it. These must be great talks. Um, and it just means that lots of people are looking at your docs. I mean, it means they're findable, but doesn't necessarily mean that they're good. Um, so I would always think of that kind of information as it's data that can help you prioritize or validate changes. Um, but you kind of have to go into it with a, a story or a problem or a specific question. So let's say what you're going in with is how do I prioritize my work? So it might be then you might discover from analytics that a really important doc you know, loads of other work depends on is very hard to find. So reorganizing your information architecture might be an important thing to do. And then you can use the same data again to validate that you've successfully fixed the problem. Or you might have a case where you're being pushed to document this, the new hotness, like a exciting new feature. But the exciting new feature, using the exciting new feature, depends on users being able to understand another less exciting, less new feature. And you might find using this kind of analytics data that the, the docs for that are widely viewed and have loads of bugs because they're really out of date. So that's information that you could use to help kind of prioritize your next round of work. Um, and it, it really also does depend on what your initial prioritization and expectations in your doc plan are. So if you're going into a, a doc project and you're very time constrained and uh, resource constrained, maybe you have only the time to document the top three features thoroughly, then, you know, your success criteria are going to be based around that. But your metrics then might help you see well what do i need to prioritize for the next iteration i have, we have one, one more question uh, so do you have to follow specific rules or uh, how much um, creativity can you put uh, in your work that is a great question and like so many of my answers <laughs> it is it depends um so for internal documentation um there is huge amounts of flexibility um, because 
it's, you know, you're not dealing with something that's going out to paying customers. <laughs> so often it's just a matter of like, well, what's going to work for this product? What's going to help? What's going to help the user? You still probably need a certain amount of consistency. So um, even in internal docs, we often use templates so that people weren't reinventing the wheel when they wanted to create a specific type of documentation set. Um, for some products, we had glossaries and word lists, so people weren't using the different words for the same thing or the same word for different things. Um, and we would, if we had uh, issues with, oh, how are we going to word this? We would often look at some of the external style guides um, in terms of wording and recommendations for formatting and stuff like that. Um, external facing docs in a big company, usually there are quite a lot of rules because they want consistency. So there would be uh, quite extensive guidelines for and formal templates to use. Um, there would be guidance on, you know, what type of content should go where, stuff like that. Um, but in smaller companies or for smaller projects, uh, a lot of the time it's, yep, yeah, you come up with it yourself. Um, it's one of the reasons actually I started my open source docs template project because it just gave people doing documentation for small projects a kind of nice baseline template they could use um, and that they could build on to, to suit their particular project needs. Uh, there's some very nice, I don't necessarily want to totally plug my current employers, uh, but there's some uh, a developer style guide, uh, a public developer style guide, um, on the Google website. I will find the URL and share it with Alan later. And that's actually a really nice kind of generic style guide for creating nice, clear documentation. Um, it's not like rules that you have to follow, but it's some best practices um, that can be helpful, especially if you don't want to spend all your time trying to decide, oh, will I phrase it this way or phrase it that way? It's like, oh, I'll just see what the style guide says. Okay, thank you. Well, we'll wrap up there. Thank you for talking with us and sharing your thoughts today. You're very welcome. I really enjoyed it. And I hope it means some of you might even consider a role in technical writing. Or if you end up working on a project with a technical writer, you'll have uh, a good understanding of what your tech writer will bring to your project. And hopefully it will help you work together successfully. Thanks very much, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening and sharing this episode. The music is dismantled by Ben Prunty and used with his permission.